Welcome to the Spirit Anointing the Word, the podcast of Highland Church, Jamaica, New York, with Pastor Subash Cherian. We're so glad to have you with us today, and we're excited about God's Word because it gives us strength and hope for each and every day. Let's listen as Pastor Subash shares this powerful message. Father, what a joy, what a privilege it is to come this morning, to gather together and to come to praise you as a company of people. The Ecclesia, the called out one, and we're here, O God, joining with the saints across the world. Some who have worshipped you earlier, others yet to come to worship. But we are united in this, that you are a good God, that you're Almighty God, and through Yeshua, Mashiach, our Lord, you are our Father, and we can have that intimate relationship with you because of the work of atonement on the cross. We're grateful for your love. We're grateful for your goodness. We are grateful for your greatness in us. And we are grateful, O God, for your gentleness and graciousness. And above all, Lord, your faithfulness to us. Lord, receive the glory. It's all about you. It's all about your presence. And we're so grateful that we can come here worshiping you, praising you in the newness, O God, of the New Testament pattern. Bless your people today, precious ones that have come all the way to be in person in what would be to gather together, and the precious ones that are watching. And we just pray for everyone. Needs be met. Lives be changed, backsliders would come home, deliverance, oh God, would occur, and people would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and find salvation. We're praying, oh God, that you meet every need and touch lives today, and we are careful to give glory and honor and praise as we lift you up, Father. In Jesus Christ our Lord, God's people said, Amen and Amen. Give the Lord a clap. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. This morning, I want to talk about something that is important. And I want you to understand, when I take this passage, some people will think, oh, that has been used as a political statement that has nothing to do with that. In fact, when I talk about what is the Cyrus anointing, it has nothing to do with political. I'm not uh, basically bringing it in term of a person or personality. Basically, the Old Testament is something that we want to understand as historical, like this person is historical. But when you come into the New Testament, the significance is spiritual. And when you think in terms of the New Testament, like the Old Testament has to do with Yahweh, has to do with the eternal God, has to do with the temple, has to do with the worship of the Most High God, has to do with all that takes place in giving praise, giving honor in prayers, and then, of course, as people, the Hebrew people in the Old Testament. Now, transferring to the New Testament, it is to do with God Almighty. Now, not just God Almighty, but to know Him and come in a personal relationship with Him, knowing Him as our Father only because of what the Lord Jesus Christ did. So we are not standing at the outer periphery, but we are in the inner, the innermost court, in that intimacy, even as the high priest did not have the privilege, we come to recognize because of our high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ, we have entrance into the holiest of holiest, and we have passed the screen, is torn from top to bottom because of what Jesus did, and we have access to not simply God Almighty, not simply God everlasting, 
Not simply God, eternal, immortal, invisible, omnipotent, omnipresent, and omni in every aspect of who he is, but to come to love him, to enjoy him, and to say, Papa, Daddy, Abba, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. But when we talk about this, we're coming in the New Testament, taking the principles, we're not going back into the temple, we're not going back into the blood sacrifice, we're not going into any aspect of the priest or the garments, but all of them have been fulfilled in Jesus, and everything in the terms of historical becomes significant in that spiritual application that we can find, not in personality. So when I talk about the Cyrus anointing, I'm actually talking about maybe the anointing that could be called Hans anointing, or Valerie anointing, or Subash anointing, or Mary anointing, or just about every one of you. In other words, individuals that God has imprinted an anointing. And it is for the New Testament, but that is not in terms of the old, but I'll explain what it would mean in terms of what would be for a man such as in the Old Testament in such a time then was so important. It had to do, number one, with the temple. It had to do, number two, and most important, number one, with God and the temple, and number two is people. And that is in relationship of a person who's a Gentile. That of a person who didn't know Yahweh, but he knew a general in aspect of God of heaven, the Elohim, or what they would call Allah or Bhagwan, but not in the intimacy of what we know or what the Hebrew knew of Yahweh, Adonai, but what the New Testament know in a relationship of not simply who he is, but who he is to us, a father through Jesus. So when you enter the New Testament, these things of the Old Testament are fulfilled and they become spiritual significance in our lives. So again, like I said, people have written books about this Cyrus anointing and naming people and places. I want you to understand, my friend, God has literally everybody in his heart, not one individual. God has literally all nations, that's not America or Israel or so both every nation before, the, before him until, of course, Jesus Christ comes and then he goes back to Operation uh, Jerusalem. But right now, the scope is the whole world. No one person or no one particular nation is so much important as all the others. When I'm talking about this, I want us to turn to Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 1, and then I'll take bit by bit of what in the next few weeks, God willing, I'll try and explain. It says here, thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, I will lose the loins of the kings, to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. What I take this is here is a man who is Gentile, he's not a Hebrew. He's not part and parcel of the Old Testament people of God. No, if we could call in the New Testament, people would say he's not a Christian or from the Christian church fold. And here you find what he says, the Lord says to his anointed, that he's saying to his anointed. And the reason I want to bring this this morning is to say that 
in terms of anointing, God anoints very much things to do with Him. Whether it is to do with temple worship, whether it's to be with prayers in the temple, or when you talk about the church of worship in anointing, or prayers in anointing, or people in the Old Testament priest and their sacrifice in the New Testament, every one of us a priest in the New Testament and our sacrifices. In terms of the Old Testament sanctification because of the oil, and here the sanctification because of the Holy Spirit. But when you take things that you find in people and anointing, I want you to understand, people tend to think that the anointing is just for specific people. A group of people, that's the high priest. A group of people who are pastors or leaders or ministry leaders. So when you think in terms of someone right out of the blue just talking about a non-Hebrew, a non-basically person who knew, did not know God intimately, and yet he calls this man, my anointed, Osiris, who is from Persia. I want to bring in and hone this very close to our hearts in our home, that God, if he can reach out to someone, how much more will he reach out to everybody here in this church? And to people that are watching, what I mean to say, we talk about the anointing upon important personalities. And we did that a couple of weeks ago. But now I want to bring it down to every one of us. If a child asked the father for a fish, would he give him a scorpion? If a child asked, if a child asked his father for bread or fish, would he give him a snake? Absolutely not. How much more your Father in heaven delights to give you the Holy Spirit. The anointing of the Holy Spirit is so important, particularly in such a time as this. But then at that moment in time, for the people of Israel held captive, it was important for them to see the hand of God, and God brought it about, not through a Moses or a Joshua, or the Maccabees, or someone of a great person, personage, but someone right out of the bat, out of the blue, out of the circle, a Persian by the name of Cyrus. And this is what he calls him. He says, Thus saith the Lord, that is the Almighty God, to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden. I want you to realize this. The writer of this passage, the prophet Isaiah, lived about 150 years even before a man by the name of Cyrus was born. 150 years before even this man came into prominence, he not only named the person Cyrus, not only named that he is from Persia, but that he's an emperor, that he's a big important personality. All of this coming from what the Old Testament people would say pagan, from a Gentile. And yet you had great people there, God called. You had this great priest to worship the great mighty God that blessed Abraham, who was a Gentile. 
And then you had Naaman, another Gentile prophet. But here you find, of all people, a king, a Persian emperor named Cyrus that God prophesied through his servant Isaiah. Matter of fact, here is one of the kings among the many five that uh, Daniel had served. Daniel was the wise counsel to all these kings from the Babylonians and Medo-Persians. What was incredible, I believe that Daniel had an opportunity to open the scriptures and speak to this great emperor, a Persian emperor, and said to him, do you know that my holy book, my prophet of the past, not only knew you before you were even conceived, he knew where you were from, he knew where you would be, he knew what you would be doing, but he also knew your name. I sort of think that Cyrus looked and said, whoa! And when did he say this prophet lived? 150 years ago. So in near 700 BC, here is this man that is raised up, a Persian. But what is so incredible is here is this, what we call the Cyrus principle or the Cyrus anointing principle that literally fulfills the word of God that Jeremiah spoke about. He talked about 70 years because of the sins of the people of Israel, and yet he talked about what would take place after 70 years and how would they would return home. Daniel went on with his prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 and verse 25, giving the time limit and also mentioning, not by name, about what will take place when the people, the remnant, will come back and of the Messiah, the Prince, that would be killed. What is so powerful, my friend, is when you see what this man did, the anointing made him do it, and God anointed this man in a rather spectacular, supernatural way, because we know the anointing is for those that have been blood-washed. And yet God sees the heart, God knows his intention, and above and beyond, God is sovereign. He can do all things. He's not boxed in as we are through scriptures, but he's not boxed in, and he does all things according to his own pleasure and his own counsel and his own wisdom. So I'm going to talk about this man. Before I do, let me just say, when we talk about anointing, remember we talked about what would be the holy anointing oil, and we talked about the incense that actually begins to typify the foundation of which ultimately we see so much in the temple worship, in everything they do, whether it be the sacrifices or whether it be things that is brought into the temple, even not only the temple, but also people to do with the temple that run literally the service of God in the temple. In fact, we just uh, went through all of that in the book of Exodus, and when you read the book of Exodus chapter 30 and verse 23 onwards, it talks about these principal spices, and when you come to verse 25, towards the end it says, it shall be called a holy anointing oil. And then in verse 20, chapter 30 and verse 34, and the Lord said unto Moses, now he gives it what would be in verse 35 would be called literally the incense. 
The anointing oil and the incense played a pivotal part of what would be the anointing, whether in terms of putting it upon the temple or upon people, because when you see, read verse uh, 26, you shall anoint, of chapter 30, you shall anoint the tabernacle of the congregation there with the ark of the testimony, that is the holiest of holiest, and the table and his vessels and the candlestick and his vessels and the altar of incense, very much inside the temple. And then in verse 29, you shall sanctify them, so this does uh, sanctify. And then in verse 30, you shall anoint Aaron and his, and his sons and consecrate them. So it becomes not only anointing, but also sanctification and consecration. And that's also you find in Exodus chapter 29 and verse 7, you shall anoint the sons of Aaron. And Leviticus chapter 8 verse 12 again talks about it. So this is so much to do with the foundation, and we talked about the oil the holy oil of anointing. We talked about the incense. They, as I said, play a very important part in the temple as to do with God, the Lord God Almighty, as to do with everything that we give to Him in terms of everything that would be in what was being done in sacrifice and also worship and also everything that the priest does. So everything that we find in in the temple, and everything to do with the temple that is towards God had to be with the anointing oil and ultimately the incense that talks about sanctification and so many other things. We went through that studies. But what I want you to understand, that when you look at it, you realize, of course we do have people reminding ourselves that in James chapter 5 and verse 14, we anoint the sick and then the others are anointed. In, but not in a way like the Old Testament. It was like an official thing they did, and this was a big ceremony, and there was literally the holy anointing oil according to the ingredient, and there was, of course, the incense being done out. In the Old Testament, we don't have to bring that in the New Testament. They were a fulfillment through the Holy Spirit. So we understand, even as we anoint people, as we put, we realize it's ointment, we also realize the incense we don't. Because the Holy Spirit is both the oil, anointing oil, and, it's, and it speaks about incense that is the praise, that He helps us in our praise. He helps us in our prayers with groanings that cannot be uttered. So we're able to play, pray, and we're able to sing with understanding. We're also able to pray and also praise God and sing with the Spirit. So with understanding and Spirit by the Holy Spirit, and yet He helps us in our prayer, as Romans chapter 8 says, with groanings that cannot be uttered in such a unique way, and that is by the oil of anointing in really helping us in the things we do in our lives, in our sanctification, in the things that we do, in the renewing of the mind, in the scriptures, everything is literally covered by the Holy Spirit. So anoint in the Webster Dictionary simply means apply or would be massaging fully with the oil. You know, a beautiful picture of that is found in Psalm 133 verse 2 like it was upon the high priest Aaron. And it says, it's like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, and went down to the skirts of his garment. And what it does is, it's not just little skimpy little oil. It is poured bucketful. It is like immersed 
like it is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and it goes right on to the skirts all the way down. And what happens with this in verse 3 towards the end, and God commands his blessing, and even life forevermore. So the anointing, when you think about it, it is what God says, commands a blessing, and even life forevermore. So while we think of basically having someone put on oil, rub oil, apply oil, what we would think in terms is one picture from the Old Testament. But when you look at it in the New Testament, that is really amazingly a picture of the Holy Spirit. We are sprinkled totally, completely. And so I don't want you to come back after the service and say, Pastor, bring a bucket of oil and oil. May I say, be filled with the Holy Spirit, my friend. We don't need the Old Testament way, but you know, we do oil anoint people. But nevertheless, what a picture I want you to talk, want you to understand is not so much as a literal oil or a literal incense, but the person of the Holy Spirit. Because the Lord Jesus Christ began to speak more and more towards the end of his ministry, because now he'll be exiting, but not just leaving us as orphans, but in comes another person called the Holy Spirit. And he speaks more about him when he shall come. He shall teach you. So when you turn to John chapter 14 and verse 26, he shall teach you all things. He shall be with you. He will not leave you. You are not orphans. So he will abide with you every time he, he, not it. Not some oil applied. It's the person of the Holy Spirit, and he begins to talk so much about him. In fact, I want you to understand, even before the Lord Jesus Christ began his ministry, we're told in Matthew chapter 3, and also in Luke chapter 4, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not a picture of some oil, ointment, but now it's a little picture of what would be a dove. So many different ways the Holy Spirit has been described by fire, water, by a dove, and by oil and incense. But when you think about it, is he a dove? No, he's a person, the person of the Holy Spirit. What a gentle person. We can grieve him, we can quench him, we can hurt him. He's a person. And we need to realize Jesus, our Lord, said, I must go so you will receive the promise of the Father. And this promise is in the person of the Holy Spirit. And he said, don't leave town. Don't leave Jerusalem until you be endured with the power from on high. You shall be my witnesses. And this is the basis simply that we would become the witness in our life in all that we do, in our witness, in our prayers, in our praises, by the person who aids us, who stands with us, and just like Jesus in the physical sense with the disciples, he is in us, with us, around us, and everywhere he is with us unto the very end. What is so important is you find the manifesto of our Lord Jesus Christ even on that day that he was baptized, and when he goes into the temple, he's given this book, not simply by fluke or coincidence, but it was under the direct supervision of the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter, uh, Isaiah chapter 61 speaks about the Holy Spirit. 
And so Jesus is now speaking, and Luke describes this in Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and verse 19. Listen to what and how is manifesto begins. That becomes ours as well. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and set at liberty them that are bruised. But in verse 20, he gives us the timeline when it begins. He says, today this is accomplished. In verse 21, he says, this is accomplished and fulfilled in your years. If you think about the Lord Jesus then began his ministry through the person of the Holy Spirit. And he came, the word became flesh just like you and me. He left all of his divinity, yes, he's still God, but he was perfect human. And in every aspect was aided by the person of the Holy Spirit. And now the Lord tells us, you need him. You cannot leave town without him. And so when you find about him, he went about all that he did anointed by the Holy Spirit. In fact, much later in the church history, the book of Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, here is the summation of the sermon about the Lord Jesus, how that he went about doing good, and he was anointed with the Holy Spirit and healing all that were uh, possessed of the enemy and oppressed, for God was with him. God was with him, and there was a special anointing to do all of that. And yet he tells us before he left, I want you to know that you could do the same thing. As the Father has appointed me, so appoint you. As the Father has anointed me, so I anoint you. And he tells us to have the fullness of what would be things to do with the Old Testament temple, whether in terms of anointing oil or whether in terms of what would be the incense, here in the person, completion of the person in everything we do. What a powerful way when you read this and see the book of Acts played out. It is not the actions of ordinary men. It is the acts of the Holy Spirit in the lives of ordinary men. When you think about in the Old Testament, that was so. Whether you think in terms of great men, they were just ordinary people. But what made the difference was the Holy Spirit. So when you look at what you see in the Old Testament, whether it were priests, they had to be anointed with oil. Whether it was prophets, they had to be anointed with oil. Things to do the temple has to be anointed with the oil. The prophets have to be anointed with the oil. And so too you find the kings that were called out by God had to be anointed with the oil. All for the purpose of God, his kingdom, and that comprised literally what they did in the temple. It is all unto God. So the anointing or the consecration oil or the sanctification oil have entirety to do with unto God. And that is why the Holy Spirit helps us. Because in our flesh, we cannot do it. Somehow, even in the Pentecostal churches, we talk a lot about the Holy Spirit. And yet, when you look at the New Test Old Testament, a picture of it, it simply doesn't play out so well. Looking at the Old Testament, you find the priest, they cannot go in on their own. Even when they enter the temple, they can't show their emotion when they're up there unto God. Don't cry. 
Aaron's two sons were killed because they put a strange fire. But Aaron, don't cry. Don't show your emotion. You are now representing God. And then you're representing God to the people as you represented people to the Lord. And so when they to worship, I want you to understand, they had to cover themselves with plain linen sheet or white garments. And it was linen or cotton simply because very strictly, they were not to sweat. In other words, it has nothing to do with flesh. Today you find almost the Pentecostal stadium is filled with gymnastic Hollywood, Bollywood actors running up and down, getting all sorts of clothes, fashionable, and doing all things of the flesh. But in the Old Testament, everything has to be covered by an anointing, and it has not to do with the flesh. No sweat. No human work. It is unto God by the Spirit of God. Yes, humanness is there. But in the midst of it, it is the oil that is making the person do what he is doing without that sweat, without that human flesh. It doesn't sting. It is the power and it is the presence of the Holy Spirit, the oil of anointing at the instance of God. So when you go through the scriptures, you're going to find in what an amazing way you can find the Holy Spirit, the oil coming upon people in a specific way. Whether it be the prophets, or whether it be the kings, or whether even judges like Samson, the Spirit of God would come and then lead. Even unto a king, before he turned so evil, like Saul, the Spirit of God would come. In all of this is the person, but when you come into the New Testament, he doesn't come transit, he comes to stay. And he's there as long as the church is in this world. He is like a spiritual mother. He's gentle, he's kind, he's complete. That helps us every day. We can go to him, he's our comforter. He's the one that we can mourn and cry to. He gently comes and gives us that gentleness of one that is more a father and a mother and everything to us. And we're not left orphans in this world. He is with us and he helps us, takes our prayer and brings our needs. And even when we cannot even speak and go to God and articulate it, he helps us to articulate all of it in the spirit of prayer and the spirit of worship that is dynamic to the Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, God is a spirit, and they that worship God must worship him in spirit and truth. Yes, human flesh, just like even organization, we need instruments, we need things, but yet behind and above all, there must be not simply a smearing, but it must be totally, completely drenched with the Holy Spirit. Yes, otherwise it's all flesh, but we need all of the Holy Spirit, whether we are in the drums, whether we are in the guitar, whether we're cleaning the church, whether we're doing whatever we're doing in your work, in your business, in everything you do, you and I need the Holy Spirit. So what the reason for me to talk about this man, Cyrus, he was not connected in so much way with the temple except that he was able to build. He was one of the initial person that built the foundation, helped build it, and in a way was many, much connected. And yet the reason I talk about him is because here's a person anointed of God specifically and it means 
For those who think it's only meant to be pastors or prophets or apostles, there is, of course, a teaching anointing. There's a pastor anointing, a prophetic anointing, apostolic in the true sense anointing. And in all of this, whether you do, there's an anointing if you're a teacher in a school, whether you're running your own business, and wherever you are in doing whatever you do, you need the anointing because that is what helps us. It's only to do with temple Everything we do is about the temple. It's only to do with God. Everything we do is about God. There's nothing called sacred and secular. It is one, and everything you do must be in terms of spiritual. So that we understand that our worship, Romans chapter 1, 12, verse 1, talks about not only in terms of worship, but also our work combined together, a wholesomeness. Now, I want you to understand this when I go back to this passage in the book of Isaiah 45. I will not have time to do it, but I'm just beginning on God willing 11 or 12 principles. Of course, I was not even able to finish the number one principle at the 8 o'clock service, so I'm not intending to do all of that today. But there are 11 principles that we have time in the coming weeks. But why is it important? Because I believe that God is giving us a fresh new insight in a time such as this, even as it was for the people of Israel in such a time when there was a war, when there was a bondage, when things were hard for them. It was difficult for them to function. The the temple was far away. They could not be relating to all the Old Testament way of doing it. In the New Testament, all of what we are experiencing and the forces that are against us in the spiritual realm is attacking people of God. And we need that anointing, a breakthrough. And I believe God will supply that particular anointing to people, even if they are not pastors or leaders or connected anyway, God loves you and God wants you to have the Holy Spirit because you're important just as anybody else. So when you look at a priest, he says, what? I say I made a mistake. Only a priest could be anointed. I say, I said, no mistake. I too may have been baffled, but God spoke to me. And so I said, and I wrote, thus saith the Lord. It's not thus saith Isaiah. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed priest. No. Pastor. No. To Cyrus, a man who would be in the business of conducting kingdom. Literally in economics, literally in nation building, and literally in the building up of the Old Testament temple. I want you to realize there are 11 principles. I'll run through it. The first one is right there. It says here, number one, anointed. And I'll tell you why peculiarly important it is, and it almost sounds a blasphemy. To have a Gentile... Have a person who does not know God personally as the Hebrew knew Yahweh. He only knows Elohim. He only knows in the way of Bhagwan or Allah or God up there. 
nothing more than that. And yet God anoints him because he is ultimately connected to the people, the Hebrew, and then ultimately connected to the temple. And so many ways he knows God because he talks about him. So here you find, he says, number one, it says to my anointed. Number two, whose right hand I have holding. I will be talking about the right hand of God. His right hand is the only harm. The psalmist says in 98 and verse 1, has gotten us the victory. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. And says in verse 2, his right hand and all his only harm has gotten. When you think about the right hand of God, in the Old Testament pattern, the right hand of God simply meant the place of great privilege and honor. And in the New Testament, when Jesus said, come to the right hand, the sheep, to the left hand, of course, the goat, is a big difference between light and darkness. And so the right hand of God is very important, particularly when you think in terms of how important it is to be seated at the right hand of the king or the right hand of God. When you think about it, my friend, it was the prayer of Jabez, Lord, and one of his asking God was that your hand would be upon me. And all through the Bible you find this word, the hand of God was upon him, the hand of God was upon him. And then Nehemiah says, the good hand of God was upon me. And Ezra says, the good, order, good hand of God was upon him. So we need to understand the benefit of this amazing, wonderful anointing is the anointing that comes to us in our sphere may not necessarily be with the church, but has to do with what would be reaching out. The third part, which is not only in terms of exalting the Lord, not only in terms of edifying, but in terms of evangelism. In terms of where you are, what you do is to the glory and to the honor of God. And God gives a special anointing. Number two, the hand of God is upon him in conducting the kingdom business. In your case, it could be your business. In your case, it could be what you have decided to do, and it is ultimately to honor God. Number three, he's talking about, listen, in the same verse, subdued nations. And I'll be talking about in this number three, how important it is we need the anointing to break the kingdom of darkness. I want you to understand right off the bat that when we talk about the New Testament, we're not talking about flesh and blood. For we do not fight against flesh and blood, so just in case people take this into literal, you're wrong. We don't carry a sword, but this is our sword. We do not advocate gun, but this is our gun as well. We're talking about everything to do with spiritual because Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 tells us, For we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and wickedness and high places and so forth. And so I will talk about literal battles with kingdoms and kings. And within us are kingdoms in the soul level and in the sense level, the five, what we see, what we hear, what we touch, all of them the enemy messes up, including our brain. And we have literally be faced with kingdoms of darkness and kingdoms of power that we need to destroy. And I'll take you to the books in the Bible, Old Testament, why they had to literally destroy. We don't do that. 
We're not in the fighting force. We're not advocating any of that. There was a day, there was a time, but that is not it. If everything is moved into the spiritual realm, that is significant, that is important. So when I'm talking about what would be the anointing of the Cyrus, I'm not talking about a physical Cyrus literally coming out of the blue into the New Testament. I'm talking about the anointing that is on that person. At anointing I'm talking about, just like it was on Cyrus, will be upon people of God for the expansion of the kingdom of God. So when you talk about this, look at what number four says again in verse one. To op to, it says, I will lose the loins of the king. In other words, God is going to do what he says in Jeremiah chapter 51 and verse 20. You are my battle axe. In other words, you're going to stand and say, your kingdom come. And by force, spiritually, the violent spiritually take the kingdom by force. It's not simply meekness, but it's the boldness of a roar of a lion in prayer warrior, standing up in faith and commanding in the name of Jesus and bringing to pass what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew, in Mark chapter 16, verse 17, they will have power to cast out demons. And so this is the kingdoms of darkness being broken down in verse 4. Then number 5, we have a two-door, a twin-door, a double-door. And uh, you go back to uh, Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 1. And it says to open before the two-leafed door. And of course, literally, in the sense of this man, there were two kingdoms. There was the kingdom of Babylon which is what ruthlessly uprooted the people of Israel, destroyed the temple by Nebuchadnezzar. Of course, they made that possible only because of their sin, and God took away the hedge, and this basically was allowed only because God had said, if you keep doing it, this is what happened. And there's a time God says, enough is enough, and then comes destruction. But here Jeremiah talked about the remnant coming back home after 70 years. And Isaiah talks about by whose hand it will come out, and he talks about a man who's anointed. But he says a double door, and for that it was the Babylonian and Persian. Now, God had told that the Babylonians will be punished. And guess who did that? It was this man from Persia came down and plundered and defeated and did exactly what they did to Ibruland. And just like that, the Babylonian kingdom that was mighty, powerful, with all the hanging gardens, the king who boasted in his power was plundered and broken. And then came the Medo-Persian government, and literally God had destroyed the Babylonian kingdom. And yet we're talking about two kingdoms again, and this is Babylon and Jerusalem. And we're still talking about two kingdoms again. It is talking about the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. When you come into the New Testament. What a wonderful way that we can read this when we go into this passage. But then number six is the gates shall not be shut. Revelation says, I will open a door no man can shut. And I will close the door that no man can open. And Paul is saying, 
an effectual door is opened unto me. We'll read that. But when you come to verse 2, is the number 7 principle, I will go before you. And I talked about the Holy Spirit who goes before us. You can see it played out in the book of Acts chapter 16. When Paul decided to go to Bethany, God the Holy Spirit said, no, change course. And so from Asia Minor, he moved down to Greece. And so, and much later came back. The Holy Spirit goes beyond and directs our paths as he has done it into your lives, into our lives, into my life as well, if we're obedient to listen to the Holy Spirit. And number eight, he says, I will make the crooked path straight. That is what Isaiah 40 talks about, John the Baptist. But here is this man. He's taking, he's making all the crooked paths straight. What Nebuchadnezzar stole from the Hebrew people crookedly, he returns it back to the people of Israel. I'm talking about the law of return. The restoration, if you can understand. All that the enemy has taken will come back if you will stand on the principle of the Holy Spirit who is the one who is your strength. Number eight, number nine principle, it goes on to say, I will break the place, the gates of brass. That he did in the New Testament, literally in Acts chapter 12 when Peter was in prison. Acts chapter 16 when Paul and Silas was in prison and there are many people in a prison bound because of the pandemic and many have walls before them. I'll be talking about the walls that we have today. It's literally a recession. Don't let anybody fool you. We're just going down and down the tube. I want you to understand it's going to be a very bleak until, unless the Holy Spirit gives us this courage and strength. And we need this anointing so we could prosper no matter what the situation. We would be like Isaac. Though even there was a famine, he still prospered. Why? Because of the supernatural means of the Holy Spirit. Give the Lord a clap offering. You, you and I need the supernatural because the world is having a supernatural power of demon. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to combat the power of evil. So when you read this, my friend, you're reminding again of what the Holy Spirit can do. He cuts us under the brass, the gates of brass. For David, it was a Goliath. For Joshua, it was Jericho. And for the people of Israel, it was a Babylonian. And yet God brought them out and broke the gates of brass. And he can do that for us today. Now I want you to understand, number 10 is where it's very important in verse 3. He says, I will give you the treasures of darkness and in hidden riches of secret place. We have gone through darkness. My God, only he knows what we have gone through. We've lost loved ones. We've lost uh, jobs. We've lost money. We've lost so much. And everybody has gone through hardship, the world and believers as well. And yet what he says in the midst of what we're going, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. And he says, out of this I will give the treasures of darkness, hidden riches in secret places. And the Holy Spirit is the only one that will inspire us to have that intimacy with God. That not only we speak to Him, but through the language of the Holy Spirit, we can listen to the heart of a Father. A lot of people have had not the same experience, but I had a wonderful Father. But I cannot tell you, my friend, when I think about my Father in heaven,
He's a billion, trillion, unbelievable times more better than the good father I had. I can't believe how good he is. If only we could understand that he's such a gracious father. He wants the best for us. Even out of the most difficult situations of our life. And this is what it is. Listen to what he says. That thou may know. This is the ultimate. Number 11. That you may know what in the midst of all that you are going through. Get to know the Lord God Almighty. Which called thee by your name. Cyrus I know you by your name. I know you, God says, by your name. I know you by your name. And know that I know your situation, your problem, your difficulty. I know you even before you were born. I named you before you were born. You're not just a social security number. I know you. That you need to know me. The intimacy of the Holy Spirit helps us to know the Father like no one else could. So what is the purpose what is the whole purpose? If you go to verse 13, you will realize what's the purpose. When you turn to chapter 45 and verse 13, it simply tells you, I've raised him up in righteousness. That's what he's calling you for. And I will direct his way. He shall build my city. Excuse me. He will build the city that is broken down. We're talking about God's city. We're talking about God's kingdom. We're talking about the church. We're talking about the temple that you and me. He says, he shall build my city. He shall let go my captives. Not for a price, not a reward, said the Lord. You don't have to bargain like you do with the ISIS. For a ransom. He says, he shall build my army. He shall bring go and bring my captives. That is what Jesus' manifesto in Luke chapter 4 verse 18. That we would be able to break and bring captives and set them free in Jesus' name. I want you to realize all of this is so important. So when he calls out a man who's a Gentile, he's a Persian. He's not a Hebrew. He's not part of the Hebrew camp. And yet God reaches out to this man and he's fulfilling prophecies one after another. And I want you to realize, particularly when you go into verse 44 and verse 28, he's talking again about this man Cyrus. It says, thus, that saith of Cyrus, that is God saying of Cyrus, he's my shepherd. Excuse me. He's my shepherd. Excuse me. Is he a David? He's my shepherd. That is what God calls a heathen in the Old Testament word or a Gentile in the New Testament word. And yet he picks him up and says, he's my shepherd. He's going to give you a shepherd's heart and he shall perform all my pressure. Even saying to Jerusalem, saying to the house of God here in the New Testament, you shall be built and to the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. Excuse me. He is one that is pivotal in building up what Nebuchadnezzar or what in the New Testament Satan has broken. And he will be pivotal building the temple, helping build, which what he did, gave them money, gave them gold, gave them everything, including all the treasures that were taken by Nebuchadnezzar and kept in Babylon. And it says, your foundation shall be laid. 
would to God he would give us people like Cyrus that would help build the church and the foundation. The news never comes out. It's never newsworthy when Christians are killed all over. Just the other day in Nigeria, a large number was slaughtered. It's happening in Egypt. It's happening in Libya. It's happening in many parts of the world. But I don't know what the Congress does. In fact, we went out to bail out a couple of prisoners in Egypt. Oh, yeah, our region, President government wanted, and they were begging Sisi to release them. Who are they? We never appealed for Christians being imprisoned. We never appealed for Christians being massacred. Not one peep out of them. It is for Muslim Brotherhood. Remember, the previous government had paid Morsi to basically, and paid them money. And they were the ones killing Christians all over Egypt. I'm not saying all were supporting. In fact, Saudi and UAE and others didn't support this. The Muslim Brotherhood made its way into our White House. And here they were, even now, literally using every tactic to rescue these Muslim League. And who are the Muslim Leagues? They killed countless number of Christians. That's their agenda. And yet in the midst of it, I'm going to tell you honestly, God has raised a man like this particular person, Cyrus. You know, Mr. Morrissey was elected by crook or means, whatever it was, and he, the first thing he wanted to do, knock down all the churches. And he appointed a very strong Salafist, a very religious uh, Muslim into this position to take over as general. He was poised for this. He was important. He had all the powers and the wherewithal. And believe it or not, here's a man who comes in with all the powers and all the forces, and he turns around and he protects the Christians. He turns around and turns around against the very people that were doing this murder. And I want you to understand, our government stopped sending any money when this man, Sissy, took over. And he's still a bad target. Where is the sense of justice? And even today, we are fighting for these no-gooders and not for people who are in prison all over the world because of their conscience and because of their faith in Jesus Christ. But I want you to know, God is raising up people like this, like Mr. Sissy, who has a heart and who has this powerful anointing that reaches out. Would to God there would be more people that would stand up for Christians all over the world that are being persecuted. It is something that you find Fox's Book of Martyrs happening again and again from the 20th century right up to the 21st century. May God raise up the spirit and the anointing of Cyrus in our world, in our time, in such a time as this. I want you to realize, my friend, when you go into this passage, something so remarkable. Think about this. The Bible, when it talks about prophets, one, two, three, four times, they're big. But God reaches out to a Gentile and talks about this man 30 times. 30 times in the scriptures. Do you know who else talks about this man? A person who lived at that period. You remember Nehemiah, Ezra, and Esther, all of them lived. Even Daniel lived at this time. But what has Mr. Ezra got to say about this particular person? 
Very interesting because when you turn right in the beginning of Ezra chapter 1 and verse 1, listen to what Ezra says. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord, listen to this, what it says. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. Oh, God stirred up the spirit. You mean to say this man had a spirit revived? God is not speaking to his soul. God is speaking to a man whose spirit was revived. It says the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. This is amazing that he made a proclamation. What? A proclamation he made openly, bluntly. He wasn't afraid. And throughout all his kingdom. And put it also in writing, my, my, my. It's one thing to say boldly and then deny it. But to put it in writing for everyone to hear for posterity, that's unimaginable. Tell me, what did he write? Verse 2. Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God, by now he knows, El Elyon, the Lord God of heaven, hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, not just any place, but Jerusalem of Judea. Who is there among you, all of his people? Is God be with him? And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God. Who? Yahweh. Here is this man saying he is God. And what a marvelous way which is in Jerusalem. Verse 3. And whoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts and, and besides free will offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Who is this speaking? Jeremiah? No. Ezra? No. Nehemiah? No. It is this man, Cyrus, speaking and proclaiming and in writing. It goes on to say later on in verse 7, And Cyrus the king brought forth the vessels of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of Jerusalem, and put them in the house of the gods, even did Cyrus bring forth by the hand of Meredith and gave it unto the people of Israel. A restoration, marvelous. That is the spirit of this Cyrus anointing. What a marvelous principle. What a marvelous thing we need to learn. You know, when you go back to chapter 45 of Isaiah and verse 1, you're going to be startled by this very statement. What God says, thus saith the Lord to his anointed. Hold a second, the word anointing in the, in the Greek is kriya. But in the Hebrew, it is messiah. And in English, it is messiah. It means to say, is he a messiah? No, but he has the spirit of the messiah. What it means is 
Ultimately, the Lord will come, the perfect one will come. He's the king of kings, kings of people like this man Cyrus, who has a noble heart. But Jesus is the ultimate. The desire of all ages, when he sits in Jerusalem, there will be perfect harmony, there will be peace. There will be what would be equality and justice and freedom and liberty for all. It's not based on color or culture. It's not based on one man's fancy or ideology. It is based on the freedom enshrined in the Word of God. I want you to realize this man speaks so much about the one that would come, like the priest in chapter 14 of Genesis that basically blessed Abraham, speaks of the Lord. That is, of course, the Lord is greater and he's the eternal priesthood. What I want you to understand is a marvelous way in which when you read this, you say, this is Messiah. No, let me just say this. The same Isaiah writes about the true Messiah, the Messiah, the angel of the Lord, the word that became flesh. What does he say about the ultimate Messiah? You can read that in Isaiah. He writes about it in chapter 7 and verse 14. A virgin shall bring forth a child. And that is literally what? It's not possible for a virgin to bring. And yet, Virgin Mary brought forth a child. His name is Yeshua. In chapter 9, and when you read verse 6 and verse 7, look what Isaiah says. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Just not anybody. A son is given. The son of God. A child is born. The government shall be upon his shoulder. This is not just an earthly kingdom. It is the heavenly, eternal kingdom. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. In verse 7 goes on to say, Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with justice and judgment from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, listen to this, the zeal of the Almighty God, he will perform it. Incredible, isn't it? When you think about what Isaiah said about Yeshua, the Messiah, in chapter 11, verses 1 to 3, look at what it says here in Isaiah chapter 11. talks about this branch that comes out of the rod of the stem of Jesse, and the branch shall grow out of its roots. goes on to say in verse 2, com continues to say, the Spirit of God upon him, and so forth. And then continues to say, a wolf will lay with a child, and a young child will put his hands in a cockroach, or basically a snake's den, and will not be bitten. There would be peace, there would be harmony, not between men and men alone, and God and man alone, but between man and animals. What an incredible peace, what a millennium kingdom that would be when Jesus will be the King and Lord of Lords. But I want you to understand, when you think about what this Messiah talk about, it is the spirit of that Messiah. And what is so incredible is when you think about this man, it's incredible. It is nothing but the only word I could say is it's sovereign act of God. God doesn't have to be bound by rules, regulations, even by scriptures. Because God is about that. He can do what he wants. He's the porter and he can do whatsoever he wishes. 
What is so amazing is, my friend, when you think of this man, he's, here he's a Gentile. He's not part of temple, and yet he had a part in the temple. He's not part of the people of God, and yet became a very important part of the people of God. In fact, they cherished him. They look up to him. And even today, the Jews of Iran don't want to be called Iranian Jews. They prefer to be called Persian Jews because that's a fondness about Persia because that man was a friend to the people of the Old Testament. What I want you to understand is Here's quite remarkable. How could you think about that? Listen to what it says in Second Chronicles, chapter 16 and verse 3, oh, 16 and verse 9. The eyes of the Lord run through and fro. He's looking for people whose heart is perfect towards him. Henceforth thou hast that foolishly, he tells to this. But the Lord is speaking to a person who was righteous. He did a blunder. But God says, my heart is looking. Did he see something in this man? It's a sovereign move of God. Look what Isaiah chapter 55 verse 8 says. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither my ways your ways. His thoughts and everything is higher. I like the way he says in Isaiah chapter 49 verse 9 and 10. Look at the marvelous way he writes it. Remember the old and what he says at Isaiah 49, I believe, well, it's, it's one of these passages he talks about, remember the past, and he says, my counsel shall stand. Let me just try 46 and verse 9 and 10. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9 and verse 10. What he says, remember the things of old, for I am God, there is none like me. I am God, there is none like me. And now listen to what he says in verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning. He doesn't have to wait in the beginning and then say what happens. Right before it happens, he'll tell you. From ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do whatever my pleasure. God in his sovereign grace reaches out to people, maybe unworthy, and if he can choose a Gentile, if you can choose someone from outside the scope, my friend, God can choose you to be with that anointing, to do what you can do by the anointing of God and to be what he could be through the Holy Spirit. You can be through the Holy Spirit. Can you say amen? amen. I like the graciousness of God as I think in terms of what we are going to discover through these scriptures. Let me just say this before... You know, I've not even started. I just basically bringing the message just scratched a bit. But what I want you to understand is there is this powerful anointing from the Old Testament. I want to bring into the New Testament to bring about there's an anointing for people today. Anointing because if you are part of this group, John chapter 1, verse 12, as many as received him to them gave you power to become sons of God. What it simply means is the disciples were called disciples. They were called believers. They were called the brethren. They were also called the followers of the way. But when you come to Acts chapter 11 and verse 26, towards the end, it says for the first time, they were called Christians in Antioch. Christians simply means not Christ, but followers of that Christo or the Messiah. And that is who we are. We carry the light. We become what would be the Messiah in this world 
following the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. What an amazing thing when you think in terms of what Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, 9 says, For by grace you are saved, not by works, but by His grace alone, by faith. But listen to what it says in verse 10. There are workmanship. It goes on to say that we are ordained that you should walk in them. We are His workmanship created. So obviously it's very important we understand something very important. That number one, that we be exalting the Lord, E. Number two, that we edifying the body of Christ. Number three, we encourage one another. Number three, we be established in the faith. Number five, that we be equipped. And number six, that we evangelize. All of this is what we are called to do. I'm going to say this, my friend. This anointing of God that came upon this man in our time and in our age, we desperately need, and I'm speaking to you, and I'm speaking to someone else, the anointing, this special anointing is here today in the New Testament, but not in a way like it is in this man. And yet I call it the Cyrus anointing. You could call it by your name because it is not the man that is important. It is the Holy Spirit that's important. You know, when you read the book of Acts, I understand how Peter and Paul and all these men are wonderful, and it's called the Acts of the Apostles. No, actually, it's not the Acts of the Apostles. It's the Acts of the Holy Spirit in the lives of these apostles. The Holy Spirit is the main character who's not seen in the narrative so much as his movement behind the scene. And I want you to understand, before I close, I want to give you a couple of H that is so desperate in this time in this situation today. We're facing an avalanche of pressure, oppression, opposition, obsession. We're facing such a whole lot of burned out and bondages, and there's only one way we can meet the need and the hour that we are called. Isaiah chapter 10, 27 says, it is the anointing that will break the yoke, and we need that to break the yoke that is around us. You may say, but you know what, pastor? I'm not called to be a pastor. Do you know in the Old Testament there were people like Bezalel? When you turn to Exodus chapter 31, verse 2 and 3, here's a man and what was his scope of work? I've called Bezalel, the, the son of Uri, the son of Ur, the tribe of Judah. And what was his work? Verse 13, I filled him with spirit of God in the wisdom and understanding and knowledge and all manner of workmanship. That's basically, you are working in a factory, you're working in an office, you're working with your own business. That is the Holy Spirit saying, I have anointed you. What for in verse 4 goes on to say, to devise cunning works in his place, that was what he was an artisan, to work in gold and silver and brass. You mean to say anointing is for all this? Anointing is for everything. There's nothing called secular and sacred. Everything is towards God. And this is our worship towards God. Number one, H, you must have that hunger. Number two, H, you must have that humility to come to him and say, Lord, I cannot do without the Holy Spirit. This time and the age in which we live, we need desperately the Holy Spirit. Number three, we need so desperately to have that H, holiness, sanctification, consecration that only the Holy Spirit can give to us. Number four H, we need to have that habit. Habit and what the Holy Spirit will do to us
You know, we know natural. The first thing we get up in the morning, we brush our teeth, we get into our coffee, and we just get our breakfast. But the Holy Spirit above all teaches us a godly habit and intimacy with God. I don't mean our Sunday morning. I don't mean our Wednesday. When we are home, alone in that intimacy with the Father. That is the Holy Spirit connecting us to the Father. That even as we go to Him, we say, Abba, Father. No other one can help you call God Almighty, but the Holy Spirit just opens up. And you go like to your own Father. Maybe you do not know Him in the earthly, but you have a Father so great and gentle and awesome. Glory be to our Father in heaven. Give the Lord a clap offering. A hunger, a humility, a sense of holiness, and age simply is a godly habit of cultivating, reading, hearing from God. And number five simply means hope. No matter what is taking place, you still hope and believe that God is still going to use me no matter what the outcome. And you can have that, this anointing that this man had. And finally, H is so important, and that is so important like never before, and that is the H called heritage. Long after you are gone, long after you have gone out of this world, what are you leaving behind? Worked all your life, passed your inheritance, and the kingdom was never built. Long after you're gone, never brought one soul to the kingdom, let alone introduced them to the church. What is the heritage you leave behind? Somebody gives you a few people, and the next moment they're gone running out of the church. When is the time you'll introduce people to the Lord Jesus? Bring them and help them to grow in the knowledge and the grace of Jesus. Leave a glorious heritage. All this age can be accomplished by the H, Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray that you've been encouraged by the word of the Lord. To learn more, please visit our website, highlandny.org, or our Facebook page, Highland Church, New York. Until next time, may God richly bless you.